Welcome to Decoding the Gurus, the podcast where an anthropologist and a psychologist listen to the greatest minds the world has to offer, and we try to understand what they're talking about. I'm Professor Matt Brown. With me is Associate Professor Chris Kavanagh. He's the anthropologist. I'm the psychologist. And we are here. We are not queer, but, but we're not going anywhere. We're going to be talking about guru stuff. Hey, Chris. That's, that's right. You can't get rid of us. Can't take us down that easily. You tried. You tried to cancel us. <laughs> Uncancelable. Uncancelable. No. Yeah, that's always a good thing to for white uh, people Just online. to dare people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they never respond to that. Um, no, no, we're fine. We're fine. We're, we're above board. We are not problematic in any way, shape or form. Well, how are things in your neck of the woods, Chris? What's been going on in the guru sphere from your vantage point? Uh, Sam Harris had a kerfuffle because he he said it was fine if people didn't give a crap about the Hunter Biden thing. And he also, he worded some things badly because he said, like, if there was a conspiracy to hide damaging information, that that would be fine mm. as long as Trump didn't get elected. So he, he said various things and he said it on trigonometry and they have a MAGA-inclined audience so the kind of mega leaning side of the heterodox sphere got very upset mm. and they kind of took it in a weird way as a vindication like sam harris is revealing that the left admits they you know they they suppressed the hunter biden laptop story yeah it's like sam, sam Har harris he doesn't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he doesn't he doesn't know he actually prefaced it by saying i don't i haven't done much research into the topic i don't really know it's and so like <laughs> that's right they they should believe him about that because <laughs> yes they should so you know one it's his opinion but two he doesn't actually know anything about what occurred there so like who cares you know the the, the one thing about it Matt, as we've talked about offline is that with the hunter biden laptop story there's such an obvious double standard because all of these folks that get so righteously indignant about it they would never expect the right-wing media to cover like on the front pages some story about Trump Jr. Mm. in the week to the election, mm. right? If the Democrats were pushing hard some story about Trump's second son or whatever, yeah. they, they wouldn't care yeah. if it wasn't covered in right-wing media. And it would never be covered in right-wing media as a main story. So yeah. it's just like such a glaring double standard. It's an irritating thing, isn't it? The um, differential standards. And, you know, the left is guilty of this too. If you want to see differences of standards of academic rigor being applied, for instance, just just try writing a, a paper with some sort of right-wing messages to it and it'll get subjected to some pretty rigorous methodological critiques. But, uh, yeah, I just don't get it. it. It's like the Hillary Clinton emails, like the amount of gnashing of teeth and hand-wringing that will go on in these fears. And then they just turn a blind eye to the blatant lying that continues in the magosphere. I mean, Trump was just, his place was investigated, right, because of having confidential information or whatever, or top secret information, apparently. And the whole thing about the Clinton emails was supposed to be not properly handling information. Handling. Mm. Yeah, but, but now... That's completely. Oh, but, but you see, Chris, that's, I mean, that raid on Mario Lago was just an example of the deep state overreach, surely. I mean, 
Now, is yeah. it, isn't that your take on it? That's a heterodox view take on that. But hey, I got to say, I respect his willingness and ability to routinely piss people off across the spectrum. I have to hand it to him, um, at least when we compare him to um, people like uh, Eric Weinstein, who helpfully in- in- injects himself into these discourses with talk that is empty blather, but designed to ingratiate himself with his perceived audience. Um, you know, to his credit, I'll hand it to him, Sam Harris and also Nassim Taleb. They've got strong IDAF energy. So, yeah. yeah. I don't mind that. Yeah, to a certain extent, the, the caveat I would add there is, like, I think part of the reason uh, Sam goes hard at Trump, but he also goes at pains to point out that it's not a partisan stance, that he just thinks Trump is uniquely harmful, and he actually indicated that he agreed probably with more than half of Trump's policies. And I, I couldn't help but think that was, you know, trying to signal to the trigonometry audience that, you know, I, I'm not just this by the books lefty, I'm, I'm heterodox mm. too. But I, you know, over 50% of Trump's policy agenda would, would have find himself on board with if, if the mind boggles. <laughs> yeah, I don't actually think that's true. I, don't, I think it's got a lot to do with Sam's self-concept. He definitely would like to think of himself as a pure beam of rational energy, as you've described him as, um, and is way, way above having specific political. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he does. He starts the interview by talking about that, how (laughs) when the hosts are doing the IDW thing of, you know, saying, Sam, we admire your work so much. You're so fantastic. How is it that you're able to stake out these positions that are so controversial and you're willing to do that? And Sam says, well, it's because his core value is intellectual honesty. That's Mm. that's how me too. Me too. <laughs> no, Matt, not you too. No, not you or any of his critics. And and then moves on to the he has no attachment to not not just tribalism but also his identity. So oh, these I got heaps of that. Yeah, no, I fall down on that school. Yeah. Um, so those those things matter. But yeah, um, so that's you know, there's been that Sam Harris has I think been joining the fruits of his labor from that appearance and then on the other hand jordan peterson went on with lex friedman for a three and a half hour conversation and as happens when he tends to do these things there's been a lot of clips of him saying various silly things we might cover some of that conversation on a special mini episode but suffice to say it's just more of what you would expect from him and yeah yeah. Interesting note is that he now basically says that his addiction was all due to allergic reactions and immunological issues that were the deep down. That was the core thing. You know, the, I didn't do a really good job of explaining that while I was ill because it, it appeared in some sense that the reason I was ill was because I was taking benzodiazepines. But that isn't why. I was ill and then I took them and very low dose, and I took that for a long time, and it helped whatever was wrong with me. And it looks like it was an allergy, or maybe multiple allergies. And then that stopped working, and so I took a little bit more for about a month, and that made it way worse. And so then I cut back a lot, and then then things really got out of hand. And So so there was a deeper thing oh, yeah, in the definitely. benzo. Oh, yeah. What can you put words to? 
Uh, well, I had a lot of immune. My well, my daughter, as everyone knows, has a very reactive immune system, and Tammy has three immunological conditions, each of them quite serious. And I had psoriasis and peripheral uveitis, which is an autoimmune condition, and alopecia areata, and uh, chronic gum disease, all of which appeared to be allergy related. And so, so Michaela seems to have got all of that. And so that, and that I think was at the bottom of, because I also had this proclivity to depression that was part of my family history. But I think that was all immunological as far as I can tell. And so the treatment for it is, you know, the all meat diet, that's what's got them back on an even keel. That's an immunological response. Allergic response, yeah. So anyways, that was what seemed, now this, I don't like to talk about this much because it's so bloody radical and, you know, I don't like to propagate it, but this diet seems to have stopped all of that. I don't have psoriasis. All of the patches have gone. Yeah. My gum disease, which is incurable, and I had multiple surgeries to deal with it, is completely gone. It took three years. My right eye, which was quite cloudy, is cleared up completely. Um, what else has changed? Well, I lost 50 pounds, and like instantly. And interestingly... It turns out he also reports in that interview his wife can only eat lamb. Tammy seems to only be able to eat lamb, although she might be able to eat non-aged beef. And uh, that makes traveling co complicated too. You know, Michaela is off the ruminant meat, back on the beef. So, you know, it's interesting because that's not even genetic, right? You could say, oh, well, his daughter, you know, they, they've got inherited immune system so there might be genetic conditions so wife doesn't have mm. a biological connection but yet also curing things with a single meat product diet well, so that's that's lucky well that's just because the all meat diet is such a miracle cure it basically it's good for what ails you they've stumbled upon it this family yet <laughs> That's that's why we're seeing this connection. You can trust Jordan to report his medical symptoms accurately as well. I mean, like he took a sip of cider, he was awake for longer than the Guinness World Record of sleep deprivation. So he never exaggerates and, and always reports these kind of things mm. accurately. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay. So this week, Matt, we have a interview with Dan Friesen from... The Knowledge for Eight podcast, a podcast which is focused on critically dissecting Alex Jones, co-hosted with Jordan Holmes, who is not joining us because he is on holiday in Ireland at the time of recording. So Dan hosts a podcast of which I think we are both big fans and which has now around about 700 episodes. So there's a huge back catalogue if anybody wants to dig into. But it's especially relevant because... You know, recently there has been the trial of Alex Jones, the first of many, with the Sandy Hook parents. And I think it's good to have a discussion with Dan, a kind of retrospective glance at the trial and what Alex is up to, but also to compare notes about how the kind of gurus that we look at interact with or parallel the more obvious conspiratorial gurus that you find in the Infowars mm. orbit. It's timely because the um, trial has attracted a lot of discourse on Twitter, as you'd expect. A surprising number of figures have gone into bat for Alex Jones, I think, on sort of free speech grounds and general kind of 
speaking truth to power. We need to hear these kinds of out of left field ideas. Sure, he's wrong about a lot of stuff, but sometimes he's really got his finger on the pulse. And uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll talk to him about how valid those points of view might be. But I'll say this to you, Chris, and to our audience before he comes on, which is that you are a massive fanboy. Like, we both respect, <laughs> we both respect Knowledge Fight, but you love it. You love that podcast. You listen to it I do. all the time. I do. You're always talking to I me about it. I told them. Yeah, yeah, and, and he, I told- yeah, you hated it. Hated being told that. <laughs> That's true. And I, because I, I, I've told Dan on more than one occasion that, like, I think he's doing academic level research into Alex Jones. And, you know, if it was anthropology, he's done multiple years of immersion in yeah. a topic and he, he knows it inside out. And Jordan as well, although, you know, he doesn't do the same level of research that Dan does, but he also knows Alex Jones inside out now. So their show is a great illustration of how having this ability to critically delve into something can be much more rewarding and useful for the world, even when the people that you cover are terrible and, you know, Mm. harmful and just conspiracy idiots. Like, uh, I think it's a, it's kind of self-serving that I think that, but but I think, you know, Dan is a, a great illustration of the benefits of looking critically at people. Yeah, totally agree. And in fact, you just made me think how it is actually a great example of like citizen research happening outside of academia. That work on Knowledge Fight, in any just world, there'd be honorary PhDs being granted from multiple (laughs) institutions in in anthropology, right? Because as you say, it is super, super well-researched and well-documented. And he knows it inside out. Um, So it's it's funny. It's actually an interesting example of of what the, the heterodox... Twitterati often talk about, which is this alternative, you know, in- media ecosystem, like dealing with niche topics and and doing a proper deep dive on them. Yeah, that is what they do. That's what they, the heterodox Matt TV, Glenn Greenwald and stuff claimed nobody has done with Alex Jones, and we we get into that with Dan in the interview. Um, and uh, one other thing I will note um, is that I always listen to Knowledge Fight and everything I listen to at times two speed. So, you know, usually when we interview someone, I'm, I have this part where I'm kind of like, they're speaking too slowly. Have I, you know, are we boring them or that kind of thing? Because I always hear them at double speed, but I didn't, I didn't have it with Dan. So that's an interesting thing. Just seemed, made him seem like he was more considered. <laughs> he was drinking, you know, pondering everything at 50% this normal speed. So, yeah. All right. We'll add that little bit of information to our, our, our dossier on your um, psychology. Psychological state. Chris. <laughs> yeah. um, very good. So let's get into it. Let's go. Let's do it. So with us today, Matt, we have... A guest. We sometimes have guests. We have one t- today. And, you know, I rarely am starstruck by the people we're interviewing, even when I like them. And I know that the guys at Knowledge Fight, Dan and Jordan, don't take well to praise about as well as we do. But I will say, Dan, up front, that we we have Dan Friesen from Knowledge Fight, a podcast focused on dissecting critically Alex Jones content and other conspiracy theories from time to time. And uh, yeah, Dan, you you are the closest from the guests we've had of a personal 
hero of sorts for me. Because like for somebody neurotic who focuses on gurus and digging into their content, you are a guru-like figure. I'm I'm sorry to say oh. so. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I have to go. <laughs> Thanks for having me, but I have to leave. <laughs> this this was all a, a ploy just to make you as uncomfortable as possible. <laughs> from That's a great the way to start things off. It's it's definitely uh oh no, I appreciate that. I, I think I don't I don't want to be a guru, but I uh I th- I appreciate the uh the, the praise, I guess. Or the <laughs> uh, the compliment. Yeah. Well we actually have even stole small bits from your segments like the the way that we shout out our patrons was modeled uh-huh. on the policy one thing so there's lots of things that we have stolen that you don't know about <laughs> we are revolutionaries <laughs> in the uh in the shout out game <laughs> yeah yeah that's it you you you've set the bar sound effects and it all just it all just happened accidentally because alex said he was a policy wonk on an episode and i thought it was so dumb I thought it was like, you are the least policy wonky person ever. <laughs> and it was around the time that everybody was using that term. Like you saw it in the media a lot. Like a lot of people saying about like Pete Buttigieg, he's a he's a policy wonk. Like he's really, really into the minutia and the details. And I just thought it was so funny. Uh, and I guess it just stuck. And I'm glad that uh, it's getting mileage elsewhere. That's cool. Oh, I hear from a lot of people too. Like, they, they're, like I got a message not too long ago from like a teacher who like uses the bright spots that we do at the beginning of our episodes with her class. And it's like this thing that's really like, it's a total side thing from the conspiracy stuff, but like that kind of stuff is, is really exciting to me. These, these things that people take and bring into their lives, you know, exp- like expressing and, and focusing on something that's positive uh, at the beginning of a day or whatever. And, you know, shouting people out with a funny sound effect, whatever it is, I'm thrilled that, uh, that, it's having an effect somewhere. Yeah, there is. A, there's an interesting dynamic that you know, the content that you and Jordan cover each week is you know pretty vile usually. <laughs> Even when you you took the divergences into UFO figures and that kind of thing, often anti-Semitic conspiracies seem to just waft into view. Yeah. But it yeah. uh, it is interesting that in covering that, there's been the creation of a community that was very visible during Alex Jones's trial, which is, mm. uh, you know, created around opposition to a hardcore right-wing conspiracy theorist, but they are pushing a much more positive message. So that's, that's an odd dynamic that's occurred. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think um, uh, sort of as the podcast grew and more people started listening, I think I became a little bit aware of how bad it would be if the only thing that we did was be anti someone. You know, like I felt like the toxicity that would be possible from that would be like, well, how do I be a better part of this community? I've got to be more against this person or more aggressively anti Alex Jones or something. And so. Whether intentionally or not, or, you know, whatever pieces were intentional and weren't, I always tried to bake in little things that were like, not just about hating him. Like, obviously, the debunking and deconstructing what he's about in his worldview is, you know, primary. But those other things, I think, are essential to like making being a listener and enjoying the show 
not a, an entirely negative experience. I think the bright spot thing is accidentally a, a very positive part of of that. And I, I, I honestly am not entirely sure how, uh, so, like, the community that's formed around it is is as positive as it is. Um, but I, I can only take credit for part of it. Some of it is just like we we've lucked out that a number of people have been really positive influences within the community and the community building itself. So that's I mean I'm I'm thrilled because if our listeners were just a bunch of assholes who wanted to attack Alex, like I don't know what I I don't think I could do this. I don't think I could yeah uh, be uh, I don't think I could keep going. It wouldn't be motivating. Yeah, I feel I get the same vibe. I mean, I, I know what you're talking about. Like the with the gurus that we cover, most of them have their coterie of dedicated haters, right? And mm-hmm. you know, often they have good reasons to hate them. But there is a, you know, perhaps a um, a personality type that is attracted to that pure negativity that isn't that isn't really what we want to be about. So yeah, it's it's a tough line to tread. Yeah, yeah, and I think I I think that a lot of folks who create aren't necessarily that interested in thinking about those kinds of issues, of what kind of um, you know, what kind of thing you uh, create or 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 sort of condone within a community and an audience. And I think that I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that there's a certain amount of responsibility that a creator has um, uh, among their like the people who enjoy what they create. Yeah. And Dan, illustrating our lack of professional interviewer skills, I probably should have asked you this at the start, but for anybody who is unfamiliar with Knowledge Fight, and we've recommended it several times, so if they are, they just don't take recommendations properly. But um, how, so if you were describing what you you do from your point of view, how do you kind of nutshell cover what Knowledge Fight is about and what you do um well primarily i think it's about like tracking down curiosity that i have about alex jones at least like that's the beginning of it and where everything is sort of spiraled from where the ball is rolled downhill um and in function how that works is i end up you know i certainly in the past i used to listen to like every day of his show i i had like a nine to five and I would be listening to his show live and then like old episodes once his show ended and like really taking notes. And, you know, I was I was very much like super consistent about it. Um, and now as you know, it's become far more repetitive and like I can kind of, you know, the, the show is not as much of a mystery to me. Well, now I, you know, I listen to the show and I'll find the information that he's putting out and trying to try to track down what he's talking about where the information comes from, and then I will present it to my friend Jordan, who's my co-host, and he has no idea. Um, well, he understands Alex Jones a lot now by this point, but he he's done none of the preparation or anything, so he'll have more of a visceral reaction to Alex's words and the uh, horrible things that he says, and then we'll have a conversation about, uh, you know, where does this come from? What's he actually talking about? And especially, like, in the last couple years or so it's become far more overt that what he's talking about is just made up like he'll have a headline and it'll be something that sounds weird but then if you actually read the story it's kind of a clickbaity headline on cnn or on some other um 
less even less reputable website and he'll just make up what the story is and so like it's become it's it's become much less work intensive for sure <laughs> in terms of the like what is he talking about oh i like in the past i would have to read books and stuff to understand what he was talking about now it's just like oh he's lying about a headline this is kind of deflating uh, but yeah, that's that's what the show is basically. I, I do that preparation, and then Jordan yells about it. And, uh... <laughs> There's it, it. It is interesting when you because you you know typically you stay in the modern era, but you you do jump back in time for like you did investigations into the original coverage of the Sandy Hook and recently the 9-11 coverage, which was very interesting. That was, that was fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Joe Rogan called in um, and also a kind of surprising interaction with Joe because he, he seems to have actually been more skeptical in the past, which yeah. <laughs> yeah, was unexpected. He had not uh, hosted the man show yet at that point, I think. That's what uh, broke him. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's my theory. Uh, so... I, there was a couple of thoughts I had from the things that you mentioned there. And one was that, so Alex's habit, which I think you've documented really clearly, of just going off headlines, of just kind of reacting without reading things. And this was documented quite nicely in the trial depositions that you covered when they talked about the inner workings of Infowars and how they present stories. But um, mm-hmm. I wonder how, I think I know the reaction, so I just said that you have to talk about it. But you know, when you see figures like Joe Rogan or Glenn Greenwald present Alex as somebody who, you know, gets things wrong, makes mistakes, but he's often prescient, right? Like he was talking about Jeffrey Epstein long before anyone else and he you know he was skeptical about the weapons of mass destruction and so on so that that narrative when you see that being presented commonly as a talking point on on kind of the right all the time and and you know in certain segments of the left wondering how you how you respond to that or is there any way to get the message through why that isn't accurate or or was he you know talking about those things long in advance well, I think that I, I think that the way to get through to people is to push for like specifics, because those people will never be able to provide those specifics. Um, there's a feeling that Alex Jones was right about a bunch of stuff, and that's a fun feeling because it's kind of roguish and it's anti-establishment kind of feeling. But it's I think it's more an illusion than anything else. Like, sure, he was skeptical about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. That's fine. But like I was part of a hippie uh, sort of community, not real. I mean, my parents volunteered at like a hippie bookstore when I was younger in like in 2002, 2003, you know, we were protesting the Iraq war and no one in these communities believed that there was weapons of mass destruction either. So like, it's not like Alex was the sole arbiter and uh, and only voice saying this thing. It's, uh, it's great that he was right on that note you know possibly but what does it mean does it mean anything maybe maybe not that much i'm not gonna consider my dad a prophet because he didn't believe that there were weapons of mass destruction you know like great and then in terms of the jeffrey epstein thing i think that you should push back on people and say demonstrate that he was talking about jeffrey epstein at this period of time because i've gone back and tried to find evidence that he was and all i can find is that 
in the past, he believed that the satanic panic of the, uh, you know, the McMartin school period was real. And, you know, he had the, that uh, guy, Ted Gunderson, uh, that he would do interviews with. And, you know, he was yelling about satanic ritual abuse uh, during that period when it was a really hot topic in America and everyone was freaked out about that. And then it, you know, calmed down because everyone realized a lot of this was hoax shit. Um, but Alex did not believe that was hoax stuff. And so you had him yelling about that stuff in the past. Then later, Epstein becomes a hot topic and everyone's talking about Epstein. And my sense of it is that everyone believes that Alex was talking about Epstein back then because he was talking about ritualistic child abuse and sex trafficking of children and, and these things. And he's applied it, the Epstein label, to the past stuff that he was talking about. And I don't really believe that people, when pushed on it, could provide uh, evidence that he was talking about Epstein by name, as he claimed under oath, back at a period when other people weren't talking about him. And so I think I think that's a way maybe to get through to people, is to be like, yes, I, I know that you have this perception that he was talking about these things. But can you show me where he was? And I don't think most people would be able to. I don't think people would respond well to that. And then I don't think past that they would be able to uh, give you that information. So I, 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 I'm open to having my mind changed, but I haven't seen any proof that that is, that is the case. So I, I mean, I, I bet it wouldn't help though. I bet people would still just be like, <laughs> he talked about it somewhere else. I just can't find the video, you know, or, or whatever. Yeah, that's that's probably true, depending on how bored in they are. But I, I did my own like amateur search, you know, looking for Infowars, and and kind of restricting the time frame. And I found just tons of mainstream media coverage about Jeffrey Epstein because like he had court cases sure. and whatnot about the events, and nothing about Infowars until after that. Which makes sense, yep. Because they're not doing investigative like reports about real things. No. So why would they know? And it, it it struck me as similar to like when at the trial recently he talked about how in the past he was discussing the Great Reset <laughs> and Carl uh, yeah. Schwab, yeah, right? Sure Who's like a figure that nobody nobody mentioned until like a couple of years ago. Yeah, if you do a uh, search on like infowars.com of like all their past articles, Klaus Schwab's name doesn't appear until like the last few years. I mean, granted, I will admit that he would talk about like the World Economic Forum as like a boogeyman kind of thing, but Klaus Schwab wasn't a character, wasn't a name that came up ever. Um yeah, and same same with Epstein. It, it's it's just yeah, it's weird. I don't know. I think people give him a lot of mileage because they want this mysterious thing to be like true. They want they want this person who's shouting nonsense to actually be onto something because it's more interesting than than uh, than re than reality. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Dan, what one of the things that that struck me when I was listening to to the knowledge fight coverage of the court case was just how um, he kept lying, obviously, yeah. and. Uh, kept operating in his alternative reality in in a way that was just clearly detrimental to his case and to him personally. And it, it sort of goes back to this one of these perennial questions, which is, you know, are these characters, like, um, pretending, like, like are, are they bad or are they crazy, right? It, 
is it all a scam? Is it all a grift? And they're very consciously in a Machiavellian way being deceptive or are they absolutely nuts and living in their alternative reality? And I know there's a hell of a lot of evidence for the former, but one of the things that struck me in the trial is just how his level of uh, of lying was it's just almost reflexive and he couldn't help himself uh, even when it continued like to damage him in a very material way. So just wonder if you could square that circle at all. Well, I have two thoughts, I guess. One is that I think that like the way his brain works, I am not sure that he would be able to understand that his actions could materially hurt him. You know, like I still, I think that he probably in some level uh, is able to talk himself into being like, well, we'll appeal this. No, this will never stand up to whatever, or this bankruptcy thing will work, and I'll be able to, you know, coast or whatever. You know, like I, I feel like he probably would be of the mind if he, if he had a rational thought about this, would think that acting like a normal person on the stand would materially hurt him more with the people who believe the alternative reality that he lives in. So that's possible. And then the second thought that I had is like, you know, um with pro wrestlers back in the day, there's a famous story that uh, the wrestler Cody Rhodes talks about, about his dad, Dusty Rhodes. And he had had a fake injury. Uh, he had like broken his leg or, or something in the wrestling storyline. And in order to like keep the kayfabe going, he would walk around the house in a cast. Like he pretended with his family that he was actually injured and there was like a great respect for the business that people had, that they didn't want to give up the illusion of it. And there's a part of me that thinks that maybe Alex is just like deeply committed to that, that kayfabe of the alternative reality that he lives in, that it would all be destroyed if he were to get on the stand and recognize like, yeah, all right, here's what happened. Here's what I did. And, and I, I, there's a part of me that thinks that maybe that's more important to him. Yeah, interesting. When I heard him explaining... You know, discussing with his lawyer or ex-lawyer or occasional co-host Barnes about the mm-hmm. the the way the trial was being controlled by the lawyer and or the judge, and that they were turning on and off the stream, and these things which are demonstrably false, right? Like you said, you could just go and look at the stream and see that that is not accurate. But the interesting thing for me when he was saying all of that is like. And I know it is, it's very hard to parse this as to how much is is genuine versus not, but it sounds like he really believes, you know, like, well or not, he knows that the reality matches that, but like, he says things and then afterwards is so convinced that like, what he said is right, that he can just kind of say it with complete conviction. And it it felt like Mm. that at the trial as well, when he tried to defend his actions a couple of times like mark would catch him up on contradictions or whatever and he looks uncomfortable and unhappy at those moments but at the parts where he just gets the monologue about what he's doing and stuff it feels like he gets into a groove of rationalizing everything and um it i don't know i might be giving him too much credit but it it, it feels like he is embodying the alternative reality that he's telling everyone is there Sure, sure. I I think as someone who's watched as much of him as I have, I think those moments when he's on the stand and he's kind of, you know, in that zone that you're describing, that to me just feels more like autopilot. Mm -hmm. That to me almost is like, that's muscle memory. I don't even know if he knows what he's saying (laughs) when he's in that, that kind of a role. 
But then, like, to your point about the, like, the stream, like, saying this thing that's demonstrably false, like, to me, that's no different than, you know, him and I think so many other figures like him. They'll say things that are clearly not true, but then say, like, you can look it up. Yeah. You know, do your own research. You know, because there's a there's a gambit there that is like, I know most people will not look this up. I know that most people will not look for the stream and see that it was like fully there and they weren't turning it off for the for the Alex's lawyers because I don't know. It's a, it, it, part of it, I think, is like well, the people who have bought in and the audience, it's a dangerous proposition to do your own research. Like subconsciously, there may be a block that is like, well, if I do this and Alex's lawyer is talking freely and the judge is not <laughs> turning this stuff off, what then? What do we do then? Like, I think that Alex knows that. And I think there's a part of him that is willing to exploit that unwillingness to open the mystery box or, uh, or whatever you want to call it. it. There was a thing whenever, you know, like Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi were promoting the documentary Alex's War recently. And the framing of that was so much presented around that, uh, especially leftists and progressives are afraid to look at the real Alex Jones like they they just want to deal with a caricature villain and they they will never put in the effort to try and understand them as a human and the thing that was so great about that was that you know it's not hard to find your podcast there's 700 episodes yep. and yep. you guys we've been in the new york times <laughs> yeah. we were on cnn last week like, like i know that we started in my bedroom and we're still recording in basically in my bedroom but we're not like we had 10 listeners originally it's not the same now yeah yeah it's it's offensive to me these this premise like no one looks at it and even more so is like you know you and jordan i think you you maybe you more so than jordan like there, there's no subterfuge about your politics right you're both progressive guys mm. and yeah but so the, the notion that progressives particularly would be afraid to look at alex jones it's so easily contradicted but it's kind of what you say that in that case some people think i'm being naive if i think that Greenwald and Taibi are unaware that you guys exist, but I genuinely think they don't no. do any effort. Like they're, they're. I, I, I think based on Jordan's tweeting after the fact, they definitely. <laughs> yeah, do. yeah. Like he was, he was tweeting at them a little too much. <laughs> yeah, and mysteriously they didn't block him, which they seem to block everybody who say uh, mean things. And so, like a bunch of people who were responding to Jordan's tweet got blocked. Yeah. And then he didn't block. I don't know. Yeah, I, I I think it's not naive to think that they don't know who we were like going in necessarily. I think the lack of preparation is probably pretty strong. Um, so I think I think you might be our. Right. Yeah, after the fact, there's really no excuse. Yeah, yeah. And I, so I mean, I think a lot of most of the people in our audience will be aware that there was the recent court case with Alex Jones against two of the. Sandy Hook parents and that there was a default judgment against them. So the, the televised stuff was really to establish the amount of damages that he would be held accountable for. And you guys were at the court case and, and have been covering the deposition. And I, I wanted to ask you, Dan, about that. Like you were before this, like from my point of view, you were kind of 
uh, an anthropologist, not in name, of the <laughs> Alex Jones ecosystem and world. But, you know, you took pains on the podcast to discourage your listeners to, like, call into the show or directly interfere with InfoWars. And, and I think with good, with good instincts on that. But with this court case, like, your expertise was useful for the, the defense. Is that the plaintiffs? The prosecutors. <laughs> the plaintiffs, the opposite. It was the- I, I called it prosecutors one time and I got scolded. <laughs> yeah. So I don't want you to fall into that. Thank trap. you. I'm glad Mark is not here. <laughs> so, so you like your research was, was useful. You were there and um, it became clear, you know, in some of the discussions you've had afterwards that at least Alex's lawyers were aware of who you were. And I, I wondered about like for you and Jordan becoming, you know, intentionally or not. And I know that you, you took pains to try and focus your output on the parents and their bravery and also just, you know, the, the very real suffering they had and them having their chance to like have their moment in court. I don't want to diminish that at all, but I do want to ask how it is for you, like coming into that part of the story and, you know, being covered in media and, and getting like, the attention reflected back on you, but given that you guys are quite like private type guys. So yeah. It's a little bit weird for sure. Um, but not that it hasn't been that bad or anything. I think we've been pretty controlled about it. Like we got a request for, like I said, CNN, uh, I would have turned that down if it wasn't Brian Stelter because he's Alex's arch enemy in the media. And so I thought like, well, this is going to be funny. Let's do this. Oh, uh, and and it's it's kind of been strange to have like interview requests from places, and um, but I think that it's a kind of a, a blessing of a position to be in because I'm able to say what I think, uh, my sort of learned experience about Alex and my perspective, and be able to focus a lot of these things on what the real story is, which is the parents. And so, like, being in that position, I feel like not behaving in the way that I have and accepting these things would be a little bit irresponsible. And that kind of brings me back to, like, your sort of what the point you're bringing up about, like, the sort of pseudo anthropologist transitioning into whatever this is now. Um, um, I think that my, like, hands off approach to Alex uh, and with, like, encouraging the listeners to behave that way was partially based in that, like, I think if people get in their minds that it's a good idea to prank call Alex, this will lead to negative sort of vibes in the audience. Again, the community, the toxicity of that could be like a really bad thing for people, and I don't want to be a part of that. And then second, I felt like it would really change the content that I was covering. Like I felt like people would call in, hopefully trying to get onto our podcast by having a prank call on Alex. Mm. And I thought that that circularness would be really diminishing of what I was trying to do. And so that I thought it was really important to keep very clear. Um, But now I think there's less of that. Like, I think there's less to learn from watching his actual show. Like the roots of his ideology and his philosophy and his politics you're not going to learn about that now. He's going to be yelling about the devil and riffing off headlines that he didn't read. And so I still don't want people to harass him and all that. But that hands-offness, I think I have a little bit of a softer approach to now. And I think the breaking point is the court case. 
And that is because I was approached by the plaintiff's lawyers and they had a proposal of helping with their case and, you know, being an expert consultant. And I really did wrestle with it for a good while because of that longstanding, we're just observing, we're not getting involved kind of thing. And I I felt like that was something very important to our show and the character of it. Um, But I couldn't escape the two ideas. One being that I have all this information and if I'm not using it, why do I have it? Like, it's a waste if I just have this and don't put it to some positive use. And then the second thing, I think this is something either my therapist or Jordan or both said. <laughs> yeah. And that was, they're not the same person. It's, it's, it's different people. Um, but th- there was that if I didn't do it, it would be an act of withholding something from the plaintiffs. It is an expertise that I have, and not doing it is a choice in and of itself. And I found that to be a really difficult thought to counter at all. And so it, it just, I think it was a sort of an abandonment of that strict line and then like the need to like, okay, we'll be now, um, we're not going to clout chase off this or anything, but we will exist in this place because the alternative is something I'm not comfortable with. So mm. I don't know, but it hasn't mm. been like, it's weird. I really thought there would be a lot more harassment or like InfoWars fans, mm. but so far it's been pretty mild or non-existent even. Like it's very, very minimal. I see fights that you have on Twitter, Chris, and I think that like people are much meaner to you than to us. I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, you know, I'll, I'll just say, by the way, that your your approach there is completely consistent with the sort of um, academic approach you know to be a standoff-ish non-activist observer an anthropologist a sociologist psychologist whatever but but still appear as an expert witness in relevant legal actions and i've done that myself in 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 the field of gambling regulation gambling studies mm-hmm. uh, so so yeah so totally totally um on board the nobody's asked for my expertise <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not not yet chris yeah. not yet <laughs> your day will come I wonder if some of that comes from just like, you know, my dad's a professor and I grew up around a lot of like academia. So I wonder if that just like subconsciously rubbed off or something. Yeah, I'm sure. Hey, like, I'm curious, like what, how do you see the future playing out for us? Because I have fond hopes when, when Chris tells me about the numerous legal actions and how Alex Jones just keeps digging himself deeper with his behavior perhaps spawning new ones and i've kind of i I would love to see a future in which he is just mired in inexpensive time-consuming legal battles for for the rest of his life is that wishful thinking on my part or um how do you see it well it's it's interesting i think actually the answer to that question is i mean it's it's a little bit up in the air obviously i think that these cases are going to be really tough for him to thread the needle on And so I think, I mean, the Connecticut case is moving forward. There's the Marcel Fontaine case and the uh, Posner De La Rosa case that's still uh, in Texas. And so those are still like, and they're, they're coming up. Um, Alex has declared bankruptcy on free speech systems, his main company. 
And I'm not sure exactly what the impact of that will have on those cases, but they're not going to like disappear through the bankruptcy. You know, there's still going to be implications. And so we'll see. But interestingly, I think that his future success kind of dovetails with some of this stuff that you you guys look at. You know, I think some of these Greenwald Taibi types are the sort of lifelines that Alex has to staying relevant and finding some way to have an audience or some kind of a, a, a renaissance for himself through this stretch. And I know that some of these folks, you know, like the Jordan Peterson types are, you know, fairly in a self-help vein. Um, and I could see Alex trying to tap into some of that as like an, as a next chapter and as a, uh, but it, it relies a lot on folks, you know, like a Greenwald and, and Taibi as they have with this documentary kind of being gullible enough to, um, play along with it. Gullible or I guess Craven, because I guess you could, you could look at it, uh, look at it negatively. Mm, yeah and lazy that they don't seem to <laughs> pay attention yeah no i mean i think he could be right um chris and i have observed um like a doubling and tripling down on that you know free speech forever type attitude amongst these types and an increased willingness to to endorse pretty pretty extreme uh, examples of that to own the libs or whatever it is and it seems so unawares too. Like it seems like they just are not, they don't know what they're talking about. Like it would be one thing if you actually studied Alex Jones, you knew what he was about, you knew the kind of things he did. And then we're still like, he has the right to say it. And this is free speech stuff. Cause then you could actually engage with it. You could actually talk about like, why do you think that this is yeah. uh, protected by free speech? But as it is, it's just a knee jerk kind of defensiveness. And it's, I, I find it, kind of disappointing yeah yeah i get i get frustrated i heard exactly the same arguments in support of say joe rogan uh, as we've heard in favor of of alex jones which is this whole big thing about how it's terrible you know they shouldn't be silenced and they're totally fine and it's people getting their knickers in a twist about nothing and and then they'll say oh but i, I haven't i don't actually listen to it i don't i don't know i don't i, I, don't, I don't know anything about it but so so these these characters are kind of uh, acting as like cardboard two-dimensional stand-ins right mm. and broader broader argument yeah yeah the alex jones and the content that we look at tends to serve as like a totemic figure that is just referenced as he's the you know the first step in the creeping authoritarianism of the social media companies and it is exactly sure. like you say dan that the people never see like they never actually grapple with what he's done it's just like a vague they've got a vague cloud idea and they might reference something about the Sandy Hook kids, but they typically have no idea that like his content is like Christian. Aggressively <laughs> fundamentalist Christian. Yeah, not violently Christian. Yeah, violent the Christian nationalist and like, you know, it, it is not nonpartisan conspiracism. It's John Bircher right wing militia conspiracism. And it, it, that's yeah. that's the thing that is often yeah, it's very hard to get the grips with because the, the same thing happens like i'm always amazed by uh how joe rogan talks about alex jones fairly frequently 
but he never he's a fun guy <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i think and I, you know my analysis with joe is like because of the type of person he is he likes to say that he's friends with somebody who's so out there that's what alex is yeah. as an you know as an invaluable guy it's like somebody that you can invite when you're in austin texas to go get a drink with and what what a cookie mm-hmm. experience but like he doesn't want the actual grapple with what Alex's content is day in and day out. Like, I think even though Rogan is a, a like right wing partisan, I think if he was forced to watch Infowars, he wouldn't like it. <laughs> yeah, I fully agree. I think he would be like, what is this? <laughs> like, what is this shit? Alex, you're calling everyone the devil and like everyone you don't like is a pedophile now. Like, what is this? This is aggressive. This is dangerous, Alex. Maybe you'd hope that would be his response. Yeah. It- yeah, there's there's like a kind of like outsider cred that like it's so false, but I guess it uh, some people buy into it that like he's like I'm friends with Alex Jones, you know. I think you know I, I, you have you have the Rogans, you have the Red Scare folks. Mm. That a lot of um, a lot of folks maybe have not bought into it, but yeah, I guess there's also like the uh, a lot of Rogans friends. Like Eddie Bravo, but Eddie Bravo might actually just believe the same stuff Alex does. <laughs> yeah. Um, that Flagrant Two podcast, they uh, Andrew Schultz, he'll have Alex on. But there's like this, like it's almost like you give yourself a, a pat on the back for being cool enough to hang out with him or something. And it's just you guys, I I don't know. Yeah, have fun. <laughs> I'm not impressed. Uh, there's a we have noticed as well, and I know Dan, you've looked. Or considered doing some episodes on Russell Brand, and you looked at Stefan Molyneux before. So we did one on him, one on Molyneux. Yeah, it was the Poland one. I think we just did an episode about him going. I was gonna do a series on Molyneux, but I think we ended up just doing the uh, the Poland documentary. Oh, maybe I'm conflating one of the Alex Jones documentaries you did. I thought it was a multi part episode on Stefan Molyneux, but oh. No, I don't think so. I think we each of Alex's documentaries were five-parters. Oh. Those were way too long. But yeah, I think Molyneux we covered in one because he just said, I'm a white nationalist. And we're like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a, I have a nope. question about that. But I know that Matt has a meeting he will at least temporarily disappear for. So uh, before you descend into the academic puff of smoke, Matt, what to ask? He's threatened by this conversation about Molyneux. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, not, yeah. don't expose my girl. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had this meeting. It's I, I normally shift my meetings around to accommodate Chris's um, meetings, but this one's with the department head, and I just I can't. But this is a this is an easy one. I want to I want to sneak in before I go, and hopefully I'll come back. Sure. Yeah. So Dan, I just wanted to ask you what your personality diagnosis of Alex Jones would be. We've seen with the gurus that we look at, there seems to be this underlying thread of grandiose narcissism which is feels like the key to the puzzle like it explains why they can operate in this alternative reality and why they can so confidently and consistently keep lying and also why they kind of can't help themselves and also why in a similar vein to donald trump how it's kind of like a superpower it has a lot of advantages it allows them to operate in a way that normal people can't but at times like this court case it also it it shows there are some vulnerabilities too i want to check Mm -hmm. with you what's what's your diagnosis though uh you know i've only been in a room with him a couple times and not actually talked to him so you know caveat but 
I think it's impossible to look at his body of work and not come away with that's ex- basically exactly what you're saying. Grandiose narcissism to a T. Um, but I also think this is a little bit irresponsible on my part. So take this with a grain of salt. But I also think that there's a strain of victimhood that he has. Like he thinks that everyone is against him. And like, I don't know if that's a sincere full feature of his narcissism. But it becomes so uh, present in so many of the things that he, the way he acts. And I think, I think that's part of the way that, you know, him and a lot of other folks in his milieu can experience everything that they do as self-defense. Like, even when it's a completely hostile act towards other people, that underlying feeling of being aggrieved at all points and everything is an attack on some part of yourself. So I think a mixture of that and narcissism uh, is is mostly what under underrides him. And I think he just doesn't read well. You know, like I think that there's a, a comprehension problem that he has that goes through a lot of his... That, I don't know if that's a character trait as much as it is like just a... A cognitive deficiency. Yeah. Like <laughs> something that makes him a bad guru is not liking well, I- to read. That's it's kind of satisfying to me and Chris that you hit upon a couple of dimensions of our garometer <laughs> framework there. Oh, so that's very satisfying. Um, I'll leave you guys to it temporarily. Hopefully, I'll, I'll hopefully see you soon. Yeah, awesome. Go tell that department head who's boss, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So I actually was curious to ask you a question a little bit. If you don't not mind. like that, I'm forbidden. This is a one way. <laughs> yeah. Go, yeah, go ahead. I was I was curious about like your take on Alex in terms of the sort of character of guru that you uh, that you focus on and you cover. Like, how does Alex fit into the? I know you're saying that he's totemic for folks that you look at, but him as a person. Um, does he qualify for what you think of as a guru? Yeah. So we we obviously um, had lots of people suggest we cover Alex Jones as a guru, right? Because like he's the he's an obvious case study. But two things that prevented us were one that you guys do a better job of it, and it's not blowing smoke. It's just like you know what are we going to say? You're doing uh, multiple hours per week on on him breaking down his content. So us like taking one selected piece of content, it felt like we kind of regurgitating what you're saying, but setting aside that logistic issue, the other reason we were a little bit hesitant is our initial uh, scope for the podcast was we want to look at this new crop of kind of online guru figures who don't fall into the traditional like alternative spirituality guru or the the kind of outright conspiracy talk radio guru type conspiracy guru and that makes sense and those kind of fit into other molds yeah like they're they're kind of documented and you know there are even th- there are direct connections with Alex and, and cult figures, right? Like the branch Div, Div, Dravidians, Davidians. Div, yeah, Davidians. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he b- rebuilt their church. Yeah. So they, you know, that that was one of the things is like it feels like a lot of the academic literature and psychology literature looking at cult and guru figures, it's it does cover those people pretty well. But Alex Jones is actually, I think, a little bit more interesting in in that space because 
he is in many ways a, like a kind of paradigmatic example of a modern guru because of his like the way that he operates with the kind of audience that he's built and i used to think that when i made parallels to alex jones and some of the figures that we can't covered i got lots of pushback i had people block me on twitter and like say how rude you know you compared brett weinstein to alex jones that's just you're just trying you know you're discrediting but as it's as it's gone on i i have to say that there's there's so many direct parallels and it, it kind of goes such that as the gurus that we cover become more and more conspiratorial and more partisan they they become more like alex <laughs> and and actually we see guests like you know brett weinstein and robert malone and peter mcculloch sure uh like brett weinstein hasn't appeared on infowars i don't believe yet he's been discussed on it He's been mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Ro uh, not again. Robert Malone and Peter McCulloch have, and I don't know about Pierre Corey, but but these kind of overlaps tend to be happening. And one of the things Matt and I noticed with like Brett is it's very parallel to what you're saying with Alex that like Brett Weinstein basically doesn't seem to read studies very well. He sometimes reads abstracts, but often not even that correctly, and he. Unlike Alex, one of the things that he sometimes does is issue corrections, but it actually, it's not even, now I'm saying that, it's not even really like, unlike Alex, because the correction is usually, we got the small detail wrong, but the fundamental point was completely correct, and people are focused on this small detail, which, you know, is completely irrelevant. I'm sorry that I was actually more right than I said. Like that's yeah, that, that that's what they often do. So I, I'm, you know, we have been threatening to do this episode for quite a while, where we want to take clips from Infowars and juxtapose them with Brett Weinstein's Dark Horse. I think it'd be pretty simple to do. Yeah. I think they're I, from. I haven't watched as much of that Dark Horse, but I've seen a bit, and you know, it's a less entertaining version for sure. Mm. Like, there's not yelling and stuff, but, yeah, there's a lot of thematic overlap. There's, there's a lot, and there was even the case that, like, um, Brett was, you know, the the anti-mandate march, that, the anti-vax march that was, you know, framed as an anti-mandate one. So I'd listened mm -hmm. to your show about a week before, and Alex was waffling on about, you know, uh, that they're going to stage false flags to discredit us and, and like cover in case there's a violence at a rally. And, and Brett was talking with Heller and basically saying he couldn't go to this anti-mandate ma march because they, the movement needs someone outside who's not present. Oh, shit. Designated survivor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When they launch, in case they launch the kind of discrediting attack and, and try to make it look that's... like the group. And it was to me like, oh. whoa, that's that's not just, you know, like, oh, there's a thematic parallel. It's like the exact same stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, I probably got lost in the dark horse Weinstein name weeds there, but it happens. I see a lot of like, I, I, and I, I don't know, I don't think it's intentional borrowing. I think it's just that if you're doing what they do, that's the kind of stuff that works. So I don't think it's, you know, they're making notes on Infowars or whatever. It's just that they have like a parallel 
evolution of the same rhetorical techniques. I could see that. I could see getting like positive reinforcement in some way from using some sort of a trick or whatever, and then it just sort of, you know, cascading. Um, actually, it's interesting. Me and Jordan have in the past talked about how that kind of idea of preemptive framing of things as like possible false flags is kind of like a line of demarcation. Like to us, that kind of feels like when you've lost it entirely. When it's one thing to talk about how agent provocateurs do exist and have existed in the past, and you know, that's fine. But the way that Alex preemptively declares everything that could possibly happen as a false flag um, is like completely detached from any reckoning with reality. And the idea that Weinstein is uh, engaging in that same kind of trick is really disappointing because it's so addictive. When you frame things that are potentially negative for you and the people you want to look good as false flags, all you're doing is preemptively justifying other people doing negative things. So like if some anti-vaxxer had done something, let's say at that March, all you're doing is creating a pretext wherein you don't have to take responsibility for that kind of action. And that is really, really potent. I think it's really, it's useful to people who engage in, you know, what you might call stochastic terrorism. It's uh, really helpful when you whip up um, kind of an extremist crowd. And I think that it's a choice to engage in rhetoric like that. And um, I find I find that to be really sad. Uh, you hope that that kind of thing would stay cloistered in like a really disreputable bubble like Alex. And not to say that Weinstein's reputable or anything, but he, he appears to be to a wider audience. I'm wary of like just then <laughs> telling you about the gurus, but I, d I do want to point out one other parallel that I observed particularly with Weinstein, which was that he got a negative review of his book, The, the Hunter Gallery's Guide to the 21st Century, and it was in The Guardian. <laughs> Gotta be an SJW or something. Well, oh, look, you preempted it. <laughs> now, on the podcast, him and his wife basically said exactly that. They said, this is a postmodern person who doesn't understand science. They've got it all wrong. And the author of the review is this guy called Stuart Ritchie. He's an academic who has written books criticizing modern science practices, you know, predatory publishing and, and uh, all of the things that led to the replication crisis. And Stuart Ritchie is also like a heterodox figure. He's published at Quillette. He's published Born Hard. So mm -hmm. him Ooh. critiquing them is absolutely not a social justice postmodern figure. And yet... Mm -hmm it would be easy for their audience to find that out by just Googling his name. I was amazed that they had the brazenness to present him as someone who doesn't understand science, who doesn't do experiments, and he's the exact opposite of that. So, you know, when you were talking about Alex saying, you know, check the feed or whatever, that's kind of what they did to their audience as well. And I was like, but, but how yeah. can they do that? Because just one Google and it will be evident that they're lying. <laughs> Well, think about it this way. Um, you can bring this up on Twitter. I, I did. And it doesn't <laughs> erode his fan base. You know, like clearly this being pointed out that like this is wrong. What are you talking about? It's not a negative 
Or if it is, like, what, maybe 1% or 2% of the audience will care? If you have a 98% retention rate by dismissing criticism, ah, uh, seems like <laughs> most, most people who are, you know, maybe not the sincerest actors might take that option. <laughs> that seems like a good way that to not have to, like, I don't know, wrestle with, like, ah, I was wrong. Yeah, um, I mean, for our listeners who don't have visual feedback, Matt has reemerged from the academic puff of smoke. It was the most efficient meeting in history. I, I was very impressed. <laughs> yeah, that's how efficient. I, 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 that's why he's a full professor. <laughs> you just got on that other meeting. No, yeah, yeah. yeah that was basically it. I said later, yeah. and they said okay. <laughs> Matt, there's a question Dan asked that I think is good, and I'd like to get your answer to um, about how we would perceive Alex as a guru and what he does. One of the things that I thought as we were talking about it there there's lots of things that we see that alex is you know narcissistic persecution complex presenting himself as galaxy brained about a whole range of subjects but but one thing that strikes me that he's good at and that a lot of our gurus are good at is when he gets on a roll like kind of citing events historical events and documents and so on and it it's, you know, kind of gish galloping, but it's also the the way that he delivers it is rhetorically powerful. And I think it's the kind of thing that people underestimate that they think, you know, it would be quite easy to have a debate with Alex Jones and make him look stupid by just pointing out. But in, in that kind of steamroller, like power of oratory, he, he strikes me as like a good and you, as you cover on your show, when you have the other Infowars characters, they're not as good at that. Like they try to ape it, but they, they can't deliver it. So that's a skill. They, they don't have the years. Like one of, one of the things, they don't have the philosophical background that Alex had from his childhood of the John Birch shit and stuff. <clears throat> and I think that gives him a conviction that someone like Owen Troyer doesn't have. And then also just like years and years of repeating things like Operation Northwoods uh and and stuff like that they don't have that that like i said muscle memory of just like boom 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 a b c d e now you have to respond to all of it you know like and mm. that's yeah it it tricks people but yeah, yeah it's, it would be hard to debate for sure yeah i think that's right i mean his style is obviously very different from someone like jordan peterson in the presentation but um i've been watching jordan peterson's recent barrage of video it's getting closer <laughs> it's getting closer that's right and there's just a lot of similarities in the strong emotional projection that's something they have in common and yeah. you know as you're saying the gish galop of one point after the next things don't need to co cohere in a in an analytical sense it, it can be a scattergun um elusive sense and you know that's that's the definition of effective rhetoric um the grievance that you mentioned dan as being you know just underlying to him i mean that's one of our big dings on the ground because they all have that to to yeah one degree or another and the other thing that dan mentioned at the beginning of the interview which was that this appeal even amongst relatively normal types who are just a bit heterodox or a bit whatever government skeptical is is that anti-establishment feeling and and the sense that everything is going to hell in a handbasket super damn quick unless we act now uh, so that call to action yeah. and the act that we do will be restorative and sort of in response there's a there's a nobility or a um 
a righteousness yeah. to the response that we we give. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, so the audience is in being a fan. You're becoming part of something that is bigger than you, that is super important, and and has this this holy crusade to embark on. So, so you know, I think it's easy to get distracted by the tone. I mean, we've we've avoided Alex and people of his ilk because. They're so extreme, and we we sort of tend to focus more on the on the moderate in it, and, and and also not least for the fact that a certain podcast is already covered, <laughs> covered pretty damn well. Uh, um, now I now I think about it, it's getting harder and harder for me to to make a qualitative difference in kind between mm-hmm. them. Yeah, I think uh, we were we were talking to Becca Lewis recently, and you know, she did the um, the network influence map, yeah, and uh, a couple of those. Um, and I was thinking about that after our interview, and. Um, I think that probably in the last few years, and unfortunately it appears to be moving more and more that direction, the connections between Alex and some of the figures that you cover and have talked about, I think are probably growing. Like, I think it's, I think it's something where the, the connections are coming much closer. Uh, and I, I, I worry about what that portends. That leads to something I wanted to ask you about, Dan, because the, um, like, in our neck of the woods, appearing on Infowars is kind of a watershed about your credibility. Uh, you know, there, and it's, mm-hmm. I think it still has stigma attached, hopefully more so after this trial. But I remember back in 2019, or whatever, when like James Lindsay first retweeted whatever her name is, Starbright. Uh, Millie Weaver? Millie Weaver, yeah. Mm-hmm. Rainbow Snatch. <laughs> yeah that's her that's her alias ex infowars employee and i remember being like oh wow look at that that's the world's overlapping and being surprised that i'm right obviously as anybody online will know james Lindsay retweeting something from that sphere became a much less notable factor and that was like represented as him kind of spiraling into the the more conspiratorial you know he he started talking a lot about Carl Schwab wanting you to eat bugs and so on. And and he actually right. had, we've, we've looked uh, into his content and he has a Christian nationalist mentor who's involved with his content. And there's like, yeah, nice parallels where you can actually hear them talking and James starts ranting about how it's actually the globus. And he's like, <laughs> yes, James, that's right. It's the, it's a, so. I'm just imagining like, uh, some Star Warsy and uh, uh, Sith kind of stuff here. <laughs> yeah, it, it's hard not to see those parallels. But the the thing that was kind of striking for me is that that whole ecosystem, the Bircher Society and so on, and talk radio on the right. That like conspiracism on the right has always been a thing. And there's also the the parallel left wing kind of crunchy anti-vax, sure. anti-GMO side which has existed for a long time and those movements like when i was interested in them in the 90s and early 2000s you know they were relatively fringe they they did have influence they they came up in political campaigns and stuff but they they weren't mainstream and and now after trump and a lot of the figures in trump land it feels like Alex and figures like him, and including our guru figures, Jordan Peterson and stuff, that they're they're not so marginal mm-hmm. anymore 
And I, I wondered how you feel about that. It sucks. <laughs> yeah, because there are people in Alex Orbit but they, who seem like, you know, they can't be becoming mainstream. Like the guy who claimed that he did 9-11. Oh, Leo Zagami? Yeah, Leo, Leo Zagami and also the other one who was saying he was in Korea, but was not in... Oh, Steve Pachanik? <laughs> yeah, like th those figures, it does feel like they can't become mainstream but i i'm wondering you know well how do you perceive it do you think those worlds are like the far right side is becoming more influential or is there still like this division where alex jones is you know kind of tied to trump world but he's he's still a relatively marginal figure or yeah just like from your perception what direction is it mm. going I would have said for sure uh, a while back that there's no way Leo or Pachanic could ever be like, I don't know, on Tucker. Uh, I don't know if I believe that necessarily anymore, but I think it's unlikely. Um, I, I, yeah, I, there's an erosion of sort of standards, I think, uh, that people have. Uh, that has happened. And I think that it's easy to say that it's since Trump and stuff, but I think it probably predates a little bit. I, you know, you could look at a hundred different uh, influences of that. There's people who are putting out bullshit, becoming slicker about it. There's the internet making everything so easy to put out and uh, disseminate. And there's the media itself hurting itself by, uh, you know, certain high profile failures, things that Alex brings up even. The Iraq war coverage in the New York Times certainly is a something that's easy to point to as like, well, how much better are you than this idiot who has a webcam or whatever, you know, who's putting out uh, nonsense? Um, and so, yeah, I think I think a lot of those influences do combine and it's coming to a head a little bit. And I think the one thing about Trump that is like a um, a large factor in it, I heard somebody I think it was on like some PBS documentary was saying that like every president has probably had the ability to use conspiracy as a weapon and as a tool and that they just didn't and Trump did and that's the way that we need to get back to normal is have leaders who are not willing to use this bullshit that's always there and always is a tool and it's a very powerful tool um but it's unhealthy and i think because Trump did it kind of eroded a little bit of those standards that people have that they use to judge the information that they're taking in it's like well the president is saying this uh i don't know it, it, it's, anything goes and at the same time the proof of like tucker's success is something that obviously probably would be a motivating factor for a lot of people to give more credibility to stuff tucker platforms all kinds of nonsense you know he's stepped to the bat for alex and in his Patriot Purge documentary, he had Ali Alexander in it and uh, Elijah Schaefer, I believe, right? Is that right? Or the guy from Revolver. Uh, you know, a lot of, lot of folks that are not necessarily think folks that you would expect to be like, oh, this is something that's on Fox News. This is, you know, somewhat mainstream. So, yeah, I'm worried that Leo Zagami mm -hmm. will show up on Tucker. I'm I think <laughs> it'll crack 9-11 wide open, which is the good news. But I, I, I think about that, too, like with uh, like Rogan having Alex on and being like, this guy is so interesting and like he's right about a lot of stuff. And then like, why won't you have Steve Pachanik on that? 
why won't you have these other complete weirdos who everyone knows are off the deep end? Why? Obviously, it's because you know, Alex is famous and close enough to respectable, whereas all those other people are are you know way off to the side. I don't know. It's a bummer of a question, but yeah, I hope I hope there's a limit. <laughs> <laughs> hope and pray. Yeah, it, it's like you know when you look at Becca uh, Lewis's alternative influencer network stuff it's super depressing but sometimes when i go back and look at conspiracy theories from 50 years or whatever ago it's it's not consoling but it, it's kind of like oh things were always bad the internet has definitely done the number but like the the partisan and hard right conspiracism is is not like something invented in the past 20 years. But the worrying thing is kind of like the John Bircher Society was at one point seen as disqualifying. <laughs> and I yeah. yeah, it was so it was like if you were into that stuff, you were a joke. You know, like and that has eroded. I think because people are taking the ideas and not accepting the label. You know, not accepting the label mm. of I'm a John Bircher or something, and they just believe all the same stuff. Uh, that like you know, communists secretly have been engineering everything behind the scenes of the, uh, you know, like all this stuff is is, you know, okay for people to bandy about and uh, not think like, oh, I'm just uh, this uh, generation's Gary Allen or whatever. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and the, I I think Dan there was related to that and, and, and the trial coverage about, you know, coverage of Alex Jones in the mainstream media, including with us, because there are times whenever some compilation of Alex doing something stupid goes viral. And I know I've heard you and Jordan kind of lament those clips being shared. And so I, w I wanted to ask uh, in, in regards to the trial or broader when it comes to dealing with Alex, do you have any, you know, advice about what not to do or, and on the positive side, like what is a good way to dig into his world if you, if you do want to cover his stuff? Huh, that's a hard, hard question. I mean, I think the only thing that I can say is that I only have an answer to this because of five years of doing this. Like, I don't think I could have had any perspective mm -hmm. earlier on. And I think I would probably have advice that I would give myself four years ago that I like. I didn't do the things that I would have done necessarily. But one big thing is there's that uh, Twitter account that Ron Flipkowski guy who like posts videos of of stuff, you know, and a lot of a lot of the Alex stuff that ends up going viral ends up being like from his account. And one of the things that I would caution people about is to assume that everyone has the same mentality they do. And so like if you're posting a video of like Alex or Marjorie Taylor Greene or you know somebody saying something patently absurd and offensive, like you are posting it and you're assuming that everybody else is going to see it and be shocked and horrified by it. When the reality is that there's a lot of people who will just see it and be like, "Yeah, all right." And essentially what you're doing is promoting them. You are doing a service of of uh, platform uh, platforming is such a, a dirty word now, but you're basically giving a wider audience to this, this thing with the assumption that everyone's going to respond to it with shock and horror. And really, no, that's not the case. 
Alex loves it when people do that stuff because, again, it's like, okay, 98% of the people that see that, maybe. I'm, I'm sure that number is way too high. I'm sure it's closer to like 60 or 70% see this and they're like, fuck this stuff. You know, like, oh, this is awful. And then maybe 4 or 5% are like, I got to learn more about this guy and then end up getting into his revenue stream, end up buying products or just, um, you know, viewing his content and maybe becoming info warriors. There is a pickup artisty vibe, you know, like, you know, you, you want to hit on a hundred women because then maybe one will have sex with you. You know, that kind of mentality of the content that goes out for someone like Alex, like there's 99 no's, but there's going to be one yes. And that one yes is worth the 99 no's because those 99 people were never going to like him in the first place. And so when people cover Alex, I think it's important to, um, be aware of that dynamic and not put out stuff that feeds into the possibility of that four or 5% walking away thinking he's somebody that is worth checking out more. Now the sort of other edge of that sword is if you be like, no one look at this guy. Oh, he's so scary. Then you run the risk of being like, well, why is he so scary? Maybe I should. And maybe that's what they want me to think is that he's so bad. So there's, there's there's a middle ground of covering him and yeah i i as far as the actual media goes i don't know i don't think they should (laughs) like i I don't know i mean like with cases like the sandy hook case i know it's impossible not to yeah but generally i don't know i think most people should just stay away from it like it's it's everyone just walks into traps and he ends up like doing these things for attention and then people give him the attention. And then I, I don't know. He's someone who's hard to dunk on necessarily. And I think people want to. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, there was the similar dilemmas that the press had in dealing with Trump in the early days. You remember? Definitely. It was just all, all publicity is good publicity. Yeah. Like even when the flagrant content arouses justifiable backlash, from other people, from other sources, sometimes the backlash is overblown, overheated, or expressed in mm-hmm. a in a way that generates more sympathy for for the person involved. And there's one one case that pops into my mind of I believe it was during like after George Floyd, um, and there you know there were some protests, and if I recall correctly, the circumstance was that Infowars cameras captured a uh, unhoused person; their bed was on fire. Someone had to set fire to their mattress. And a lot of the coverage uh, that people had of it ended up being that InfoWars reporters set this person's mattress on fire. And that was such an unforced error that people made because then Alex got to be like, we did not do that. This is the media lying about us like they always do. And it reinforces this. Uh, notion that everyone lies about Alex and you can't trust the media and and the things that you see online because everyone's out to get him. And it's just a spiral Mm. um, that people are often, they often end up falling into if they don't know the sort of content they're covering. I think that's, that's a, that's a challenge. Yeah. Now I'm seeing, seeing resonances of that with a lot of our other gurus too. They inspire strong emotions, right? They inspire um, reactivity and it's almost inevitable that some of it will be overblown, unfair, mistaken in some way, shape, or form. And then that, Mm -hmm. I could think of half a dozen examples off the top of my head. So yeah, it's a general problem, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's it sucks because I don't know if there's a um, like an underlying problem necessarily that gets solved and people like Alex go away or whatever. You know, like this this problem is solved, but because it's metastasized to the state that it's in, I think that dealing with and covering the actual individuals requires like really special attention and like unique awareness. And I, I just don't think a lot of folks have it. And um, I'm not, I'm not saying that is like everyone shut up, leave this to me (laughs) (laughs) because I think there are a lot of other folks who have, whether it's intuitive or researched opinions that are pretty, pretty solid and uh, an approach that works really well and, and treats the content like it like it deserves to be treated. But the, m- most of what I see is is unfortunately maybe well-intentioned mistakes. Yeah, that- I th- I think the you know the emphasis that both you and Jordan put on the trial that as far as possible centering coverage not just on Alex but like on what he's actually done and what the parents are are talking about and how they're responding to it that that was that was good and I did see some coverage that that took that form and I it felt like it will be much harder for people as more of these cases continue to roll down to ignore that it wasn't just a mistake. It wasn't like Alex accidentally said on one or two shows that maybe it was a false flag, but that rather it was giving support to figures who were doing direct harassment of of family mm. members. Um, so yeah, that that at least is possibly a positive. Sure, and I, I but I think I think that if the coverage is centered on Alex so much, then it's much easier for him to deflect too, like centering things on the reality of the circumstances and like what this is actually about makes it more difficult for him to wiggle out of because he can't really wholesale uh, hand wave reality. I think he can sidestep some things and especially when they're about himself, it's pretty easy to control the narrative and change things. But when reality is just like, a train barreling down on him. It's just, there's nothing to do, you know? And I think, I think that that's something to be aware of. With the trials that are forthcoming as well, like uh, I guess they're going to crop up over the next couple of years. I think think within the next year, well, it depends on the bankruptcy thing, but yeah, I think they're, they're more impending than, than the few years. So there's, there's two questions I have for you there. One is, are you and Jordan, going to you know like because it's obviously very draining like attending those events are you planning to cover the trials like you did this one and secondly um a kind of broader question is i i i'm sure you thought about this dan if infowars did stop functioning or if alex jones you know left and other hosts took over i can't see that happening but just that kind of thing never (laughs) yeah that's the yeah these these losers can't cut it but i'm i'm wondering in your case like you and jordan have made really in-depth analysis of alex jones and you your shows where you look at all the figures indicate quite clearly that you know you you can branch out and a lot of the same rhetorical techniques are cropping up but i'm i guess i'm wondering uh, i'm terrible at long-term planning so i'm sorry to do this to you but like what do you see the knowledge fights future like 
continue to cover Alex Jones indefinitely or at some point move on from him or well to to that point there's a lot of the past left to to explore you know I have all of his episodes going back to like 2003 so they're on a hard drive and even if his website goes down it's fine you know like so there is plenty of other content we can explore there um but yeah i i do think about like the possibility of other folks but it's kind of hard because alex is very unique in the the bombasticness the fact that he doesn't have a boss that no one can stop him from just like being drunk on air and like saying complete nonsense and crying about the devil and like i don't know if anybody else has that high of a profile and that much freedom and that's something very special um but yeah we'd find somebody else i'm sure like i'm not worried about the notion of him going away and i honestly don't think like even if he goes broke he's necessarily going to go away he's such a flagrant narcissist that like i could see him getting like negotiating some major contract at like the blaze or something like i think that would be really humiliating for him on some level but like i could see him ending up on oan or i don't know mm. like or or just doing his own podcast like that's god god damn it <laughs> the rock bottom <laughs> rock bottom yeah yeah come join us <laughs> in the podcast game um so i could see that i'm not worried about that in terms of long-term stuff and like if he ends up going away and it ends up hurting our bottom line or whatever with with donors or audience i don't care at all that's yeah i am not i'm not interested in him for the sake of preserving any kind of job that i have uh found to your other question not a chance not going to another one of these (laughs) trials that was it was an emotional and um psychological and physical drain that like i don't want to engage in again like it was, it's so hard to be away from home for like a couple of weeks and going to the trial day in and day out. And, um, yeah, it's, it was a lot. And then also the other consideration too, is that like, I've, uh, assisted with the, uh, the Texas plaintiff's attorneys, but not with the Connecticut, uh, folk. So the, the lawyers on that end, I don't really, I, I don't think I would be invited to the Connecticut case. Mm. Uh, necessarily and then um, the other ones that are gonna go on in texas uh they're in the same courthouse so they should be live streamed just as well as the other ones so i think that one of the things that i learned from this experience was there are a few things that you get from being in the courthouse in terms of the the vibe and you know seeing alex kind of be depressing you know like in breaks and stuff but it you can see most of it on the stream you know it it um it really does provide a great amount of access and transparency to uh what is actually happening there and i think that i would rather just do that for the other cases yeah. it'd certainly be cheaper I, there was something you said there Dan, that just reminded me i wanted to ask you this the like when i listened to the earlier episodes of knowledge fight at the beginning you're much more you're much more like trying to be overly charitable Alex than you are now and for good reason like mm-hmm. I entirely understand that but you've mentioned a couple of times that you know the uh previously 
you were interested in conspiracy theories and that kind of thing. And I I was kind of curious about that, like how much of that was, you know, just your kind of, you know, UFOs are kind of interesting or or alternatively like Eddie Bravo style, you know, like lecturing people in bars. Depends on how long I've been at that bar, but... Uh... <laughs> No, I I don't. Uh, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to say. I was very fascinated by a lot of stuff. I may, I you know, I it's a little embarrassing to look back on a little, but I, I certainly dabbled around with uh, uh, 9-11 conspiracy theories for sure. Like I don't know if I was ever convinced of anything, but I certainly entertained them more than I would today uh, when I was younger. Uh, but and I think part of that was just because you know I was. 18, 17 when it happened. And, you know, it's deeply traumatic and processing it uh, in the context of where my life was at 17 was not, uh, it didn't, didn't necessarily go all that smoothly. Um, but yeah, I had, I had more like the Atlantisy kind of vibe <laughs> yeah. of conspiracy. That's, that I, I that's the healthier. <laughs> it's, it's aspirational, you know, like there's a, there's a fun world where everyone's equal and we have magic technology and, you know that kind of stuff is uh, uh, was more fun for me. But now, doing this and and seeing some of these folks who are in the like maybe Atlantis was real camp, you start to realize that behind that is unfortunately maybe some neo Nazi ideas. Yeah, and, you know it dovetails into like Hollow Earth stuff and like oh <laughs> nothing's fun anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, it is unfortunate how often that there seems to be anti-Semitic or neo-Nazi connections and things like, you know, people joke about it on the internet, about people over-documenting it, but it does come off up an awful lot when you dig into things. And uh, yeah, I I saw a clip where Joe Rogan's partner for On It, Aubrey Marcus, had some weird guy on who was talking about this and then began singing a a song in atlantean that he remembered from a past Ooh. life and awesome <laughs> yeah and i was watching it going okay like this is the bit that i wish we could keep where the, there are people you know singing in the atlantean language of their yeah, past lives that's fun yeah but the unfortunate thing is like you say aubrey marcus the previous week had Brett Weinstein on talking about mm. COVID and you're just like, why? And and I think you guys face this problem when you know you know why Atlantis was so healthy? Ivermectin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Natural deworming. But uh <laughs> yeah. when when you guys like go into the UFO stuff, that that was that's similar, right? That like there's lots of crazy stuff and people are talking about raptor aliens and spider aliens. Yeah. And then there's the like <laughs> did the holocaust happen <laughs> yeah. we don't know it's an open question yeah. Yeah, like oh no <laughs> yeah we we cover this thing project camelot and the host of it it was just so much fun and like wide-eyed wonder at these aliens that exist out there and like secrets that are being kept from us and you know the vietnam war was really about fighting giant beetles in vietnam and like oh this is fanciful and weird and then yeah it becomes out of nowhere like Jews are aliens, possibly, and maybe the Holocaust didn't happen. It's so disappointing. Yeah, there's just not there's just not the fun of that pure, I don't know, childlike wonder, at like what could be out there in the universe. And and I think one of the problems with it is, especially with the alien stuff, is once you start getting too granular with it, you have to start giving characterizations to all the different races of aliens. 
because you can't think of them as individual alien people. You know, you have to be like, these ones are mean and these ones are, yeah. you know, and I think that that kind of thinking ends up being applied to people a little bit too, um, too easily. That's something that I've noticed among the, uh, the UFO folks that I've looked at is like, oh, you look at alien races as just like human races of people. <laughs> and uh, that's unhealthy. There's obviously so much literature on the sort of psychological components of, of the appeal of this kind of fantastical conspiracism. There's so many moving parts, but one of them is is just that they're fun and they're interesting and, and they're complex and they're rich. And and this is a, a similar appeal to complementary alternative medicine compared to your typical hospital medicine. There's a backstory, you know, there's colors, there's diagrams. It's you can get into it. It's Baroque. And that's just cognitively appealing. I've all I've always loved speculative fiction, science fiction and fantastical stuff and also like crazy art you know really abstract expressionism and so on but then another part of my life i, I I'm, I'm lacking you know, science and research and evidence and objectivity and so on and it's just a very personal opinion is that it's just these are all great things but these worlds need to be kept apart <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. or at least know where the distinction is yeah. you know like you can enjoy both in the same day. It's just uh, yeah. Yeah, they're not the same thing. Not the same thing, and don't conflate them. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a big part of Alex that I think is is also really central to his um, personality, along with the narcissism and persecution complex. Is like inability to recognize that science fiction isn't reality. Like he constantly thinks that like books like Childhood's End or like this is this yeah. is predictive. This is this is telling you what the globalists are going to do, and like, eh, but but that's that's a- another interesting connection with the um, Jordan Peterson and this this sense maker sphere. I don't know if you've heard of the sense. Mm-hmm. You would love but, it, Dan. But, <laughs> you, you would love it, but I'm going to write less, this down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like less obviously toxic than Alex Jones, but there's this dimension of it which is being totally enamored of allegory and archetypes and the power of of things in literature that actually reflect reality in a in a truer way than the mm-hmm. stuff that you can actually observe we, we've listened to so many hours of it and um it, it is mental masturbation to, to my mind but i can, it can be see, fun it, i can oh i see just like masturbation i can see, <laughs> <the appeal. laughs> see you, you theoretically can grasp that concept <laughs> so but yeah that that confusing of or, or rather seeing a way to understand the material world, like actual historical events, actual politics, actually things that are happening in society today and now, and, mm-hmm. and seeing that the stuff that you're reading in legends or, or, or even in popular culture, Jordan Peterson loves his pop culture, yeah, just conflating it with, with stuff that's actually happening and happened. It's a, it's a fun way to connect everything narratively, you know? It's a, it's, it's, it, it makes a, it's a, it's a cleaner, cleaner story than maybe lo- looking at things as sort of disconnected pieces. Yeah. And then yeah. the, that, like, you know, in the same way, it often seems like the engagement with the material is so superficial that, like, they've, they've actually got motifs wrong or taken the opposite message. And so it's more like, you know, the way Orwell or 1984 is cited in the popular consciousness is I'm, I'm very doubtful how many of those people 
have actually, you know, read Orwell recently or, or like, you know, spent ever. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, uh, Jordan Peterson, this comes up with because he, he reels against communism and, and the horrors of it and so on. And, and there, you know, there are horrors, but it's also clear that he actually has only read like the Gulag, Gulag Archipelago. The Solzhenitsyn. Yeah. <laughs> and, and maybe two or three other books that he constantly references. And, and like, even when he's going to be on stage debating a Marxist philosopher, Zizek, he doesn't bother to, to read any of Zizek's book or, or even, you know, just the Communist Manifesto. So it's, it, it's, it's hubris. Yeah. But I also, I also think it's partially hubris and partially a recognition that you have to keep moving. Like, I think for people like him and like Alex, I, I made this uh, analogy before. It's like a Jesus lizard. You know, like the momentum is what's keeping it above mm. the water. If it stops running, it's going to sink. And yeah. I think I think that there is a part of being in that sphere of, of guruing or whatever that is like constant motion is necessary or else people will start to realize that a lot of this is bullshit. And you have to... And, and that lends itself to a superficial understanding of a lot of these things, because that's the surface. That's the surface that you got to keep running on, because if you take the time to dig deeper into anything, it'll be like, wait, you don't know what you're talking about. This is, I shouldn't listen to you. And I think, I think that dynamic is pretty widespread. Yeah, there's a, there was a great example recently when Jordan Peterson talked about, like, he, he had been talking for years, referencing these presentations of coiled snakes and how... Yeah, he, he, DNA. Yeah, but he always added in, okay, this is speculative. And, you know, I can't really, I don't have time to get into it. It's very complex. The things that I think about this, it's not straightforward. It's very complex. And and then Richard Dawkins, to his credit, like pushed him on and was like, you know, what, what did you mean when you said that? And like when he explained it, it wasn't complicated. And it was incredibly <laughs> stupid. And it, <laughs> but it sounded better when he didn't explain exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think yeah. with Alex, it's the same thing. Like, you know, the when he appeared on Joe Rogan, and this must have been like uh, nails on the chalkboard for your soul. Like Joe Rogan said, you know, I'm going to fact check everything Alex says. And, and that basically amounted to, Jimmy, Google the document. Does it exist? Oh, there is a document. Hmm. What the? What the hell? Alex is 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 right. We have proven that the surface exists, <laughs> and we can keep moving. And and if you listen to any of the times he's on Rogan, that's the tactic that he's using: is constantly jumping around, constantly implying that there's another truth that he's going to get to in a minute. Hold on, you know, like it's it's sleight of hand tricks with words, basically, and like it's sad. That's why when on your show, you know, you do that thing, which which I literally think no one else on the, on the earth possibly does. Like when Alex makes an offhand reference, you dig down what is the source that he is possibly referencing or that he is taking this from, and it's always so superficial and so you know unreliable. But it's that that thing of like stopping and saying well what where did he get this idea or what is he talking about and it's it's so empty and it's exactly what you said that like it's not just alex it's it's a lot in the guru sphere that when they're just pinging off and kind of in the rhythm it looks impressive and it can seem like wow they they know a lot of stuff they've got a lot of information about documents and historical events and myth and legend but they 
they don't. They're just like really yeah. good at at talking. That's the skill. Well, well, I also think that like it's generous almost to say that it's empty because the reality is that that surface, like you think that there's water underneath. They're, you're being tricked into thinking there's water. I might be going too far with this metaphor. <laughs> but in reality, it's like lava or something. You know, in reality, what they're skimming on the top of is actually a dangerous ideology and a dangerous worldview. Uh, so there, there is the appearance of knowledge that is obscuring, like, the sources aren't empty often. The sources end up going back to things that are, like, you take this too seriously and you're going to end up advocating the end of the Voting Rights Act. Mm. You know, like this is the kind of stuff that he's actually obscuring with the dance on the top of the water. And I think that that's worse. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah. I wish they were empty. You recently, Matt, were yeah. saying Jordan Peterson was accidentally reinventing fascism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like similar kinds of things. It's, it was... It was like you were saying. It was just alluding to it in many ways, you know, capturing the the feeling of it, the vibe of it, the the, the style, but without without going any deeper than that. And I, I don't even think Jordan Peterson himself is explicitly a, aware that the things that he was finding appealing, which is, for instance, like a young man finding a high authority, an organization, and devote and subvert your yourself in it completely, <laughs> but also be a hero. <laughs> Fighting for the thing, and also, and there was a whole bunch of land like, and country, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. And, so <laughs> yeah. It's and it's a small jump. Yeah, like I don't think he was aware that all of the things that he clearly found appealing, found rhetorically powerful, uh, um, and emotionally satisfying in this was was actually all pointing in the same direction. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think there was a, uh, I think it was around uh, 2015, maybe early 2016. Um, there was a guy who used to be on Infowars all the time named Webster Tarpley. Oh. And uh, he, I'm not, I'm not a fan, but he did write a very interesting essay about how, like he'd seen people like Alex end up going to supporting Trump. And he wrote this piece about how it was wrong to like hero worship Ron Paul and that the obsession with Ron Paul was essentially the doorway through which all of these people were going to be led to fascism. And I was like, well, you had a pretty good point there. Too late, but uh, good point. It was a weird level of awareness, and I, <laughs> I haven't read it in years, but my, my recollection of that essay was like, this feels feels like uh, you have a good point. Yeah, just that we, I, we have experienced people within the like wider guru sphere who can be like quite perceptively critical about particular gurus, often people that have disappointed them. Yeah. But then their solution is like, but this guy over here is like a slightly different flavor. Bitterness brings clarity. (laughs) Who who has like all of the same hallmarks, but just is not yet, you know, where Jordan Peterson is. It's like, but these guys, they don't have any of those flaws. And you're like, right. we haven't seen them yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. These look, these look very similar, but, uh, yeah. the- well, that dynamic exists. I'm sure all over the place. Like Alex will be like, he'll hate somebody until they pay him attention or like him, you know, like Tucker was a shill for the mainstream and a globalist, until he started getting racist enough for Alex, and then he liked him. Glenn Beck was someone who was just stealing Alex's act and selling it to the the globalists, 
And now Glenn Beck likes Alex, and he's like, well, Glenn Beck was pretty great all along. One of the best. <laughs> yeah. Michael Savage was uh, a beatnik from San Francisco and a arch globalist until he started to like Alex. And then, like, he was a patriot all along. One of the best. One of the pioneers of our movement. Like, it just the, all this is transactional to to an extent, I'm sure. But yeah, but very, but very, very congruent with the narcissism, right? That's mm-hmm. that's that's how that's how they operate. But you know, a lot of it too, of course, is that Alex is so good at. And well, or rather, he devotes himself so wholeheartedly to trying to get attention and trying to attach himself to to anything or person that that can get him more attention. Obviously, most notably with Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. Again, another parallel. I mean, we, it's kind of embarrassing. It's cringe the way some of our gurus, like like Eric or Brett Weinstein, for instance, just continually try to bring themselves to the attention of people that are slightly more famous than they are. And it's mostly Rogan, mm, yeah. Because I think that they realize that his standards are low enough for them, <laughs> and yeah. they see the boost that he has given all of their careers, and like so, he's like a central hub for all of them to yeah. suck up to, basically. And there yeah. was, you know, uh, before when Alex re- managed to get the reinvitation after he'd been off for a while, he he did that exact thing of like you said, you know, he made one of the compilation videos about Joe Rogan being racist, which which went on to trouble. He threatened to reveal secrets about Rogan's children on air. Like, he was going at him hard. Yeah. And the the funny thing is with them, when he appears on Rogan, you know, it's it's very much, they they don't really dress like that level of vitriol, but they... He said he was going to gut him like a pig. (laughs) (laughs) And you would imagine, you know, Joe would have the self-respect because i would imagine he saw those clips but yeah he probably just saw it as you know well that's that's alex being alex like yeah Yeah, you can you can make up you can make up stories that justify a lot of behaviors when you want to be like ah this guy he's just it's all for show or whatever but i wouldn't i wouldn't put up with that if jordan started threatening that kind of stuff i'd be like before we talk publicly again we're going to publicly discuss the fact that you want to gut me like a pig that's yeah. bullshit let's let's clear the air a bit what yeah. what did you mean it's just metaphor just a metaphor but um dan I, there was something i i know we've kept you long and i don't want to steal your whole evening but there was something that i thought your expertise in particular would have some insight on and i didn't sure. really know how to interpret. Um, so Paul Joseph Watson, a, a second-in-command figure, at least for quite a while in InfoWars, who's now receded I- into the background a bit on his own. Um, mm. So in the trial, he comes across as like more, at least better at self-preservation than and Alex, right? About warning, this looks bad, we, we should be careful here, and, and seems to from this reveal about emails to have continued to occasionally ring some warning bells. And you guys, you don't give him a whole heap of credit. Like you, you highlight that he's a, you know, he is a racist piece of crap, but, but he's relatively more strategic. And, and yeah, that clip came out of him about half a year, maybe a year ago now of him being cartoonishly racist, anti-Semitic, like he managed to fit into a two minute clip almost an impressive level of bigotry and racism and i wondered like 
I, I initially thought that clip was too on the nose to be real. Yeah, me too. Because the recording quality wasn't good. And it just seemed like, really, would he have done that? Would he have said all that stuff? But he subsequently has never, you know, mentioned it. And I imagine he would have tried to sue people if it hadn't been real. Yeah. So it left me with this thing where I thought that Paul Joseph Watson would be more, even in company that is sympathetic to his worldview, would be more cautious about saying those things outright. And it, it did lead me to wonder, like, have I underestimated just how racist those people are or how bigoted they are and like what Alex and company say behind closed doors. I'm, I'm almost certain you have. I would, I would, I would almost guarantee that with that clip in particular, I kind of have a similar feeling of like, it seemed too explicit to be real. Um, and, and yeah, like you said, cartoonish in its bigotry. Um, but I also believe it could be real and, and almost for the same reason that you're saying, it's like, this would be actionable if this was, you know, somebody making a fake that's, th that's defamatory. And if it's a fake thing, then it's actual malice for sure. Because the person putting it out knows that, you know, even though Paul's a public figure, that would be, I mean, he's calling for like the extermination of Jewish people in that clip. Like that's pretty defamatory, yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't know if it's true or not. I don't know if it's real, but. I do think it's something that he would say in private company from taking in enough of his content. I don't think that seems too shocking that those would be held beliefs that he has. But yeah, he's, he's slick. And I think that the distinction is that that was probably a clandestinely recorded thing. If it's real, whereas emails and texts are obviously things that, you know, are records and they're things that, you know, that are, things that and it's a business decision in some ways for paul you know like this sandy hook stuff is going to hurt our business don't do this and it's you know i think it would be wrong to ascribe a level of humanity to what he's saying you know like hey those poor families who you're going to end up getting hurt that's not the thrust of his point it's like this makes us look crazy this is going to hurt us in terms of being able to bring in bigger guests these are logistical concerns as opposed to it being like, this is wrong to do. And so he does have a better head on his shoulders in terms of being able to suss out like what could have consequences. Um, but yeah, I think he's probably as big a pile of shit as Alex, if not, maybe worse. I mean, it's possible that he's even worse. I know his content is harder for me to watch because of all the like quick cuts and everything. It's just... It's disorienting the way he can't even get a sentence out making his point. It's like three words and then a cut to another word and then word. And then it looks like he's crying. And Is he ugh. still on InfoWars? He will host the fourth hour periodically. I know I've seen him come up, but he, he has that summit.news uh, website. And then Alex uses that as a source a lot. Uh, and so there's kind of a symbiotic relationship. I wouldn't be surprised if he's still like, in in some fashion, uh, like a contractor or whatever for Infowars, but yeah, he's he appears to have diminished in his stature from like when he was editor in chief. Yeah, the, when he was heir apparent at one point. Yeah, but then that article <laughs> came out, and Alex got mad that said he was uh, going to take over, and uh, maybe that was what did it. I don't know. Narcissism. <laughs> That's another True. thing. Okay, real quick, covering him if someone must. I think it's a good idea to poke at his narcissism. 
if you're going to cover him, do something that will inflame his narcissism. Because because that's fun. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that as a as a note. But uh, yeah, Dan. Like I I just want to say I'm not going to do the thing that will upset you and please don't Jordan because that upsets us at the end of podcasts as well. <laughs> whenever people are praising, but I you know I think it should be clear that both Matt and I have like extremely high regard for the content you put out and it was really nice to see the families and and also yourself and the people who push back and Alex get a a win recently so yeah everyone that listens will already know but where can people find <laughs> you if they um, want to well knowledgefight.com is our is a, is the website that uh, people can find us at and yeah, and, you know, I appreciate it. I don't look at uh, this as a win per se. I think it's a positive sign, and hopefully, like there'll be some kind of consequence that'll come because you know his behavior merits a consequence. But from everything I can tell, the families look at what uh, happened with the trial as a win in terms of setting the message that they wanted to send. And uh, for me, that's that's plenty. You know, that's that's what's important is that they came away satisfied with the uh, the conclusion so hooray for that mm. yeah mm. and i'll continue yep. laughing at his dumb ass uh and uh, <laughs> yeah. pointing out how he doesn't know anything about the subject he's covering <laughs> well like you said if the if they're grandiose narcissists and you want to poke them and do something to upset them then the best thing to do is to laugh at them yeah <laughs> I, I would also say the fact that he doesn't mention you guys is an indication that what you're doing is is somebody he doesn't like? I think so. I don't want to. I don't want to put too much stock into that. But I think, I think we cut out there. <laughs> we got him almost all the way to the end, and just that last little bit. <laughs> yeah. All Cheers, right. Dan. Uh, thanks for me too, Dan. Be good having you on. Keep doing what you're doing, um, and let's hope that uh, Alex Jones spends the rest of his life in court. <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> I think we completely cut out right It's done, Matt. <coughs> it's we, done. We are finished. And, and we should mention that at the end, the very end of the podcast, we had some technical difficulties where we, we all got disconnected. So we recorded and, you know, we've kind of pieced it together. But that's why the ending is kind of abrupt because we were going to have, you know, the usual probably waffly outro but instead uh, the internet crapped out and so it it's just, just clean break yeah we're done we're yeah, done clean break <laughs> <laughs> he dropped his microphone walked away it was a baller move yeah in the in the internet sense so that was that was very enjoyable thanks to dan for coming on and sharing his his wisdom as it were so hopefully we we have more reason to interact with the knowledge fight guys again maybe if we cover alex jones specifically on an episode we we obviously would reach out to them but hmm. they might not want to <laughs> do that but you, you know the, the offer is there anyway hmm. absolutely absolutely so what's coming up next i forget is it review of reviews it is and we have just a couple short ones this week so i've got two negative ones the first one is a one star from Norway. That's rare. People in Norway usually love us. Mm. Um, but the username is called Decoding 
the decoders, which suggests that they've registered their account purely to write this review. It's so never, I don't know. Never a be. good sign. Never a good no. sign. And the title of the review is Unwell, one out of five stars. But it, it's pretty it's pretty short review. It just says activists, not truth seekers. Stay clear, folks. So, mm. oh, yeah. Okay. Not much to be done with you that. Know, mm. Not much to be done with that. There's lots of opinions on the internet. Some are wrong and some are not. And this is a wrong one. <laughs> this is yeah. a wrong one. I'm seldom accused of being an activist, I have to say. No. Mm. Me, me neither. So, from there, Matt, we'll go to a more substantial negative review. This is by Marcus517. Too many style criticisms. Two out of five. Oh, not, not one. We still, you know, got something valuable. Okay, it's a left-leaning podcast, but this one's not the worst. What bugs me is how lightweight it is. You don't like Jordan Peterson or Brené Brown or probably any other media person who leans right? Just, just the insert here. Pretty sure Brené Brown doesn't lean right, no. but any case, any case. So then, tell me there. Um, so tell me there that are wrong. That's what they wrote. Tell me there, there. <laughs> <laughs> tell me there that are wrong. Okay. <laughs> By the way, both these people irritate me, but you give me nothing other than style criticisms. I agree that Brené comes across as a self-help guru. I too find that irritating. But what has she said that's wrong? Somewhat better with Jordan, but too many cheap shots. Same with the episode on Friedman and Height. You are researchers. Do your homework. I've only listened to four or five episodes, so we'll give it another chance. Mm. There you go, Matt. Okay, that's us told. But in our defense, we, we are all about criticizing style. That's, that's the point. It's about... No, you always say this, and I always pull you on it, because I think that's wrong. You're just... It's its false. It's inaccurate. It's, <laughs> one, don't agree with this guy. <laughs> but, but I'll tell you why you're wrong, Matt, because that implies that we don't address the arguments that people make in their content. And I know from recording 50-plus episodes of this podcast that we often get into the actual arguments. And in particular, the Lex and Height episode. Yes, the criticisms of Lex were mainly about his kind of, you know, his presentation style and stuff, but that's because that's mostly what Lex is about. He's mostly an interviewer. Mm. And so you only get kind of snippets of his worldview. But we did do criticisms about, you know, his approach to world geopolitics through personal relationships and his kind of naivety towards, you know, the history of World War II and yeah. that kind of thing. Yes, yes. And, and with height, yes. almost all of it was about the content of his arguments. That's true. That's true. So, yeah, Matt. Okay. No, no. <laughs> look, we don't disagree. Look, with... With the people that are actually saying something a bit more substantial, like height, then we do tend to um, engage with the content more, right? But when someone is saying something that is really quite stupid, but it's all dressed up in all kinds of fancy language, then we strip away all of the style. We do talk about the style as well. But then when you pull it down, when you get down to what they're actually saying, which in the example you just gave is a good one, just, oh, we can solve the problems of the world by you know, having a good personal relationship and remembering that we're both just human beings, um, you know, 
there's not much, you know, it's pretty stupid. There's not much to Well, but that's there. the, so look there, there, what you just talked about. That is looking at the rhetorical and stylistic features that surround the argument, but then highlighting what the actual argument being presented is. Like with Jordan Peterson, just to give that guy an example, we talked about him talking about how, you know, religious art makes people feel something and they they travel far and wide to visit the museums that have religious art in this and this shows that religious art houses some deep truth some profundity which people are attracted to mm -hmm. now he doesn't apply that logic to modern art like the lobster telephone right or you know secular art is is also in museums also traveled to see but Jordan doesn't focus on that. So that's highlighting, you know, contradictions in his argument. But you can also highlight that the way he dresses that up is with this massive, long, five or six minute story about people visiting museums. So there's like a stylistic criticism, but you also disagree with the content of his argument. So yeah. I'm just telling you what you're doing. I'm just telling you what you're doing. I know. I know. You're right. I misspoke. We don't just criticize style and that review was wrong and you should have given us five stars we're on the same page again. that's why you and marcus are wrong so there you go marcus, you're in I, good I was wrong but now i've seen the light you've you've turned my <laughs> yeah. turn me around it's been it was useful this was useful and so the last thing i'll end on a positive note a five-star review from bang bang bart see better username as well. <laughs> and it, it, the title is typical typical and then it says, five out of five, just your regular to postmodernist neo-Marxist rebelling against God for the crime of being. Two thumbs up. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Yep. It's accurate. Yep. That's, That's accurate. In a nutshell. You know, we're only <laughs> activists if your worldview is, you know particularly partisan like that's the only way if you think that you know us critiquing brett weinstein and jordan peterson and stuff like that's all that's all really based on partisanship like no it's it, it isn't it, it it really is not mm. and, and when we do our season of left-wing gurus it'll it'll be even clearer for people but yeah um, there we go yeah i'm a partisan against uh world that has demons in it <laughs> yeah yeah and uh, you know now listen listen for the people that are listening listen better because this is not saying we don't have any political views we don't have any biases or that kind of thing we're just too lazy to act on them that's what <laughs> yeah the, we have biases but we're not activists and like yeah i i don't i've never been mistaken for an activist so Anyway, there we go. Look, uh, I, you riled me up with your negative well, reviews. Well, now, 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 now. I mean, come on. Um, let's throw them a bone. I mean, I can understand how it would feel. If you've got right-wing sympathies and you listen to us and we're knocking all of these people who espouse, you know, right-leaning at, at least um, yeah. things, then that's the way it's going to feel, right? 
It's going to feel like that. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I get that. I get that. But they're still wrong. <laughs> they're yeah. so, you know, it's a, sorry, facts don't care about your feelings. <laughs> if, if we are left-wing activists for you, your bar is Whoa. to... You should, you should get on Twitter. <laughs> you should see what, they, what they're, they're up to. Yeah, yeah. they're different. <laughs> so, Matt, the last thing to, to turn to is to say thanks to our lovely patrons. And I've got a bevy of them to shout out this week. A veritable bevy. A veritable bevy. So for Conspiracy Hypothesizers, we have Matt Johnson, Wendy Hylett, Sheila Underwood, Stephanie Karen, Dean Gregory, Rob Andrews, You Can't Do That on Robertson, and Joseph Riley. Great. What a gaggle of Conspiracy Hypothesizers. Very good. Yeah. Thank you all. Thank you all. Every great idea starts with a minority of one. We are not going to advance conspiracy theories. We will advance conspiracy hypotheses. Next up, Matt, then we have our revolutionary geniuses, a higher class altogether of patron donators. And there we have Diane Morrison, Simon Cooper, Kerry Ann Edgehill, John Hand, somebody who makes various memes on Twitter that are good. Neil Hornsby. Chris from the Rewired Soul podcast. And Chris Barber. Hey, I was just talking to Chris earlier. Very good. Thank you, guys. A lot of good Chrises. Mm. A lot of good Chrises out there. Mm. Uh, thanks, everyone. Maybe you can spit out that hydrogenated thinking and let yourself feed off of your own thinking. What you really are is an unbelievable thinker and researcher, a thinker that the world doesn't know. Okay, and last, Matt, but certainly not least, the, the not least at all, the Galaxy Brain Gurus. Mm. And here, Matt, here we have Derek Vaughn, we have four Arsef, we have the... <laughs> The real Eric Weinstein. <laughs> I, I didn't know he had signed up, so that's... Uh, thank you, Eric. Jedi Mishap. Another, another good, good name. username there. And Buini Klassen. Buini Klassen. Excellent. Oh. Thank you, I, one and all. Thank you. You're sitting on one of the great scientific stories that I've ever heard. And you're so polite. And, hey, wait a minute. Am I an expert? I kind of am. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't trust people at all okay matt well it's it's time for us to bid everyone adieu and get out of here and uh i think given the release schedule probably next up is the sense making extravaganza so there's something for people to look forward to yep. more sense making to come we will be integrating sense making about sense making turning sense-making squared into sense-making cubed. Little maths reference there for the people that uh, could appreciate that kind of thing. Dimensional yeah, cube. An interdimensional cube. Yeah, we'll be getting to that. That's um, the thing to look forward to. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Thank you, Chris. Have a productive and happy day. Indeed. Note the disc, accord the gen, be safe out there. Bye-bye. Yeah. Ciao.